If all these stories have you wanting to go on your own adventure and you don't want to spend a ton of money and you don't want to take a ton of time away from work and family, I highly encourage you to check out Lost Travel Company. They do trips all over the country, everything from biking to rafting to kayaking, hiking, etc. And on each trip, there's an official start line and an official finish line, but getting between locations is totally up to you. However you want to do it, however you want to carry your gear, it's a total free-for-all in between. And, and, and it is a group trip, but they're very small groups. Uh, so you get to know people, but you can also easily practice social distancing. So a lot of the trips are still happening. And like I said, uh, they're very affordable, very easy to get out and go do because they have figured out a lot of the logistics for you, but it still leaves so much room for adventure to happen. And with each trip, they give back 5% of the total trip as a donation to the area where the trip is happening. So if you'd like to find out more, go to lost.travel and use the code ADVENTUREsports for 10% off any of the trips listed. If you're suffering from stress, anxiety, lack of sleep, inflammation, pain management, kind of like I am pretty much all the time, I highly encourage you to check out cocanacare.com. And that's C-O for Colorado. It's a Colorado-based company. Canna, C-A-N-N-A care.com. They make incredible CBD oil that's derived from all natural, high quality industrial hemp. It's legal in all 50 states and is USDA certified 100% organic. And there's absolutely no THC content in the oil. It's non-GMO and contains no heavy metals or pesticides. They've been gracious enough to help support us during this time. So if you're wanting to try CBD oil for any of those reasons I mentioned and a lot more on their website, I uh, highly encourage you just to give it a shot. Check it out. Go to CoCanna care.com and again that's co for colorado c-a-n-n-a care.com even in the worst case if you blow a tire and can't manage to patch it or let's just say you destroy i don't i don't even it's it's hard to break your bike to the point where you can't pedal but even if you did somebody would come by and pick you up or help you out This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Hey, folks. First of all, I want to apologize for missing out last week, but I want to explain what's going on. Um, you know, when you get to host this show, you get to talk to a lot of people doing some really cool adventures, so much so that you you don't really get out there a lot. It's kind of a phenomenon. You know how it is. You do something all the time, and or, or at least talk about it all the time. You don't necessarily get to do it, uh, but I'm actually out on a bike tour right now, and I'm recording. I am the support van for a cross-country bike tour for the brewery I work for, Athletic Brewing. We just opened a second brewery in San Diego, and our and our first one's in Connecticut on the East Coast, so this one's on the West Coast, and we're literally riding a bike in between, and I'm running support vehicle, and what we're doing is one rider at a time to essentially bike across a state. So it's it's about 10 states or so, and it doesn't work out exactly from border to border, but one rider at a time is doing you know, across that state. And we're out in the middle of nowhere. I'm in the middle of Ohio right now. It's beautiful. 
Um, lovely people. It's been great. But so the sound's going to sound weird because I'm sitting in the front seat and I'm going to, you know, refuel the cyclists as they pull through. And, uh, you know, we just thought this is going to be an awesome way to kind of cut the ribbon on our uh, on our new brewery. And if you don't know about Athletic, we make non-alcoholic craft beer. I know, crazy idea, but you have to give it, give it a shot. It's for folks who love the taste of beer, but not the effect of the alcohol. So doing something like a cross-country bike trip is a, is a perfect example. We can have a beer at the end of the day, and it doesn't affect performance for the next day. But uh, yeah, instead of, you know cutting the ribbon like a typical company would do we decided to do something a little bit crazy and uh, i definitely push for a bike tour so that's what i'm doing and i'm trying my best to keep the show coming out while i'm out on this tour but uh we're staying safe you know we're staying clean as we go into areas we're staying our keeping our distance but i, I promise you out here in the middle of the backwoods country it is not hard to keep your distance. So we're about eight days into it right now. I'm going to be out here for another month and uh, just just helping these riders get you know getting their bikes ready, getting the food prepared, and um, getting their fuel, their, their 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 everything they need to keep riding hard and uh, keep going, um, keep going the hundred plus miles a day that we're doing. But anyway. Today's episode is awesome. It's with Carl Kroll, and we talk about actually bikepacking and bike touring. Um, we've had a lot of episodes around that recently, and I didn't mean to have two South American, you know, bike touring episodes right next to each other, but that's how it worked out. But Carl combines bike touring or bikepacking with mountaineering, which is just an incredible concept. And uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. Carl was just a pleasure to have on. And we will be following his journey when he gets back out there to finish the Pan American Highway all the way up to Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. Um, But anyway, wish us luck out here. You can check out what I'm doing on Instagram. I'm going to be I'm posting constantly all day just to kind of keep folks updated. But a long enough intro as it is, so I'll I'll uh, I'll save any more plug-in or any more information uh, for another episode. But anyway, thank you again for listening. Hope the sound quality isn't too bad. Here is the episode. Hey, folks! Welcome to the show uh, today. Man, I don't even know what we're going to talk about. I think I know what we're going to talk about, but uh, Carl, who is joining us today, is coming from Minnesota, and he has got a heck of an adventure resume. So I'm excited just to dive in and 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 see see where it goes. I I, I think I know, but we'll see. That's how adventure is, though, right? Welcome to the show, Carl. <laughs> Thanks, Mason. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, your podcast has accompanied me many times throughout my trip. So. Oh, I also man. don't know what we're going to talk about exactly. I'm curious. <laughs> that's so great to hear, man. That that's so cool to hear. You, I mean, you have experiences from you know skiing to to just travel in general. You've been to almost seventy country, all the lower forty eight states by bicycle. And twenty five of those countries you've been to have been on a bicycle. You've canoed all over the place. You've done hiking and trekking. I guess we should just start at the beginning. Honestly, where where did you grow up, and what did you grow up doing this stuff, or did you have to discover it on your own? So I grew up here in Minnesota, like you said, and I, I just want to clarify: I haven't cycled all of the forty eight states, but that would or oh, the okay. But but I've traveled through all of them. Yes, but, okay, I see that now. My my apologies. Still, nope, no, no, wor- no worries. I don't feet. want to get too much credit. Here, but, <laughs> uh, 
But so I grew up here in Minnesota, and my parents, uh, from a very young age, just instilled a thirst for adventure. We have the Boundary Waters here in northern Minnesota, so ever since a young age, doing trips in the Boundary Waters, and then just traveling all around the United States. And eventually, man, I was like 14, 14 years old, 15, like doing trips out west with my with the family and my dad started taking me up mountains here and there. So yeah, just from a young age, instilling a love for travel. Wow. So, so, so you just didn't go places to, to, you know, vacation. You, you were doing things on these trips too. I think that's really cool. Cause you know, you know, we, we, we did some things, some fishing and stuff, but no, but nothing real, real crazy outdoors. And, it was a whole new world when I started doing it. So you were you were kind of given that that opportunity early on. Uh, when did you start going out on your own or doing some of these other trips? Was it, I guess, right around when you started leaving the house? Maybe maybe around the end of high school or so. You know, my first my first solo trips uh, that I did were probably well. The first big solo trip I did would be skateboarding from Minneapolis to Duluth. And that, yeah. Yeah, so I did I did that when I was probably 21. And it was a, it was a learning experience, but it also was kind of the intro to that touring lifestyle where people see you and are just really curious. Like, where are you coming from? What are you doing? Like, are you crazy? Here's a hot dog, you know, like super, super friendly. People just see you in a different light when you're, they see you traveling by human powered. I can't imagine going through that area and people driving by in the opposite direction and say, did you see that guy on a skateboard? (laughs) What the heck is he doing? I'm sure you had just constant interaction. Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, people people are curious. If some if people are having a barbecue, they're going to invite you over, stop at a gas station, and I mean, people, of course, like, like you know from touring, people are just curious. And on that first tour, I had no idea what I was doing. I printed directions on MapsQuest because this was back in Ma- MapsQuest days. Yeah. And maybe 20 miles of my route, well, over 20 miles, but at least one 20 mile section, I just arrived at a dirt road with my skateboard. Like what, what am I going to do here? And just started hiking, you know? And then just my intro to first intro to wild camping, wild camping as in unorganized camping places, just trying to find a place on tour. Yeah. That whole, that whole lifestyle. And then I decided I would do it by uh, more efficient means by bicycle. Man, yeah, yeah. The bike does help. I'm sure the skateboard wheels don't roll as well on, on some of those rougher roads out there in Minnesota. You tell me. But what what made you do that first trip? Like, what what was the inspiration to skateboard that distance? Ah, uh, you know, it. I had been watching some guys on YouTube who were doing long skateboard tours, and it it's not a typical skateboard. It's a longboard. Oh. Perfect. Yep. Yep. And I actually made longboards when I was in university, had a little company. I made a skateboard specifically for long distance pushing uh, with carbon fiber. It was a foam core skateboard, so extremely lightweight. After I finished the skateboard, like without any testing, two days later, I was like, all right, I'm 
skateboarding to Duluth. I did not know all that background. So this was, so that you put in some other skills, some of your, you know, mechanical engineering skills, which is, you know, what you did for a living for quite a while in a bunch of different places around the world. So, so that, you know, that, that's actually pretty interesting. I wonder if that's, uh, I have, we have had some folks skateboard touring on the show and talk about that. I wonder if that's something that's going to continue to grow or if it's just, if it's just so much more efficient to be on the bike, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm sure it was yeah. a relief to jump on a bike. Bicycles about the perfect speed. I mean, I, I know you've had people on the show who are doing long distance walking and I've met them and it's bicycle is such a nice speed it's so efficient uh and you can make it as hard as you want then with skateboarding and walking it's yeah i I don't know (laughs) yeah it's it's really hard and like props to those guys who are doing that because man you do not have an easy way out or an easy exit in a lot of situations that is wild, man. So, so it, it seemed like after that, you started traveling more um, internationally and, uh, you know, for work partially, but it, but it looks like you'd also get an adventure in during those times. Um, you did canoeing trips, you did, uh, yeah, some climbing. Were you, were you a mountaineer from those experiences with your mom and dad early on, or did you have to get back into it then? Were you, were you fairly proficient, or did it feel like kind of starting over with mountaineering? Uh, I mean, as with mountaineering, I, I'm not by no means an expert, but it's one of those things that the more you do it, the more proficient you get. Maybe you can pick a harder mountain than the last time and your route finding abilities just go up incredibly. So, I mean, I don't think it's anything anybody is born with, but it's certainly one of those things that every time I do it, I get even on even on hikeable peaks like you can always be taught a lesson mountaineering. So I think every time you go into the mountains, it's a it's a learning experience and you just keep on building skills. And now with uh, some of the peaks I've climbed in South America, it's, I mean, it just, it feels like your uh, resume and your experiences just keep on growing and growing for different conditions. And I mean, just, just everything. Yeah. Just, uh, but so I, I would not say I, I started out after, after climbing with my parents, knowing everything to do. I, I had to learn a lot on my own. I got really into rock climbing for a while. And I, I still am. I've just been touring too long, but I feel like rock climbing and mountaineering go together really well, just as far as being efficient on the mountain and uh, systems for for gear and all that stuff. Yeah, that that's really interesting, and I, and I I absolutely want to get to that that your most recent trip, and you know, leading up to that trip it looked like you had just so many experiences um, all over the world, you know, month-long bikepacking adventures, uh, just just lots of different sports. How, how would you choose an adventure? How would you choose a kind of a starting and ending location? Because for me, it's like I, I need some sort of goal in place to, to make me motivated to do it. The, the, I don't know much about these places. Did it make sense, like, to have a start and finish in these, these adventures you did, or did you just kind of go out for however much time you had and did what you could? So in maybe, I must've been 2000, in 2017, 
I moved to Warsaw, Poland. And when I was thinking about moving there and making my plans, I looked on the map and I saw like Warsaw and then I saw Istanbul. And I said, said to myself, I don't know how it came to me right away, but I said, man, that would be so cool to bike from Warsaw all the way to Istanbul. So right as soon as I went there, I knew I was going to do that trip someday. Oh man, what was that like? Oh, I mean, the Balkans are incredible. There are so many different cultures. There are mountains there. In in Romania, you have uh, the most wild places in in Europe. And the Carpathian Mountains on the border of Poland, Ukraine, and Romania. And actually, they go all the way down through the Balkans. Uh, I mean, it's just beautiful there. And there are grizzly bears there even. It's just it's a wild, oh, wild place. Wow. I didn't realize that. So, so was there? Was it similar? You know, bikepacking culture-wise, as, as as parts of the U.S. As far as did people know what you were doing, or was it really bizarre for you to be there? What was? How were you accepted in some of those places? You know, it's it's totally unknown there, especially like an off-road biking style. There is. I mean, it's it's known, but among local people, it's not known. It's not there aren't as as far as I know. Well, there's certainly bikepacking routes out there, but I wouldn't. I I didn't go on any. I'll just say that. Uh, okay. The in parts of Ukraine and Romania, and definitely Poland, I didn't see any other people touring for weeks, and then. I found when I got to Serbia, I crossed a Eurovelo route and I rode on a Eurovelo route for a couple of days or for one day. And I saw a ton of other psych to, uh, touring cyclists with four paneers and just classic, classic touring. And then as soon as I got off the main route, I didn't see see any other cyclists for a couple of days all right until i got to bulgaria and then i met one other guy but yeah it was just that's wild man what a, yeah. what a crazy you know just just feeling alone out there what what did you learn on that trip what was one of the biggest lessons you took away from that from that first trip uh, i mean one thing i learned is that i wanted to do it a lot more so <laughs> you got bit by the bug you got bit by uh, the so bug. hard <laughs> So by the time I reached Istanbul, I had I had to look for a flight back because I didn't know exactly when I was going to get to Istanbul. But by that time, I actually booked a booked a flight back from Georgia <laughs> because the country, um, the country of Georgia, because I knew I wanted to go to Georgia and cycle some more. So I. Uh, I extended that trip by taking a train across Turkey and then just cycling around Georgia for a couple of weeks. You do that trip, you got bit by the bug. The next year, it seems like late January of 2019, you decided to go on this huge adventure, um, r really the length of South America and, and a lot of Central America you decided to bike. And that... And, and if, am I not mistaken? That took quite a while, over a year, correct? Yeah. So my plan going into this trip 
uh, was to bike Ushuaia to Alaska. And, and Ushuaia, for those who don't know, is the most southern tip of Patagonia. So I, I spent the last 14 months before the full pandemic we're in <laughs> uh, and cycled the length of South America and ended my trip with due to the corona pandemic in Costa Rica. So, so the plan was to go all the way to Alaska, um, you know, just to jump ahead. Are, are you planning to go back out there and finish the Pan American Highway? And I, I'm, I assume to the Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. One hundred percent. And I have real, like, really exciting news right now. It's just a crazy time for me. I am uh, just preparing my bike for next week to actually start the Great Divide route. Awesome. So, so when are you going? What are you doing? Are you doing the, uh, like, are you talking about the, the, the Great Divide mountain bike route? Yep, the Great Divide oh, mountain bike. I have some friends out there right now. Do you really? Nice. Yeah, they're going southbound, but they're almost done. Nice. Yeah, maybe maybe you can put me in contact for conditions. and. <laughs> sure, yeah. I, th- I think it's uh, pretty good. I've, I've seen at least three or four people that I know who are out there and don't seem to have much issue with snow or um, anything right now, I, I think it's a pretty good time. Awesome. So I'm going to bike my, my length of my trip in the continental United States this summer. And then my hope is that, I mean, who knows, but my hope is that Central America starts opening up later this winter. And I would like, then I'll bike the Canadian and Alaskan section to Prudhoe Bay, hopefully next spring. But, oh, perfect. But yeah. with, with the conditions, it's it's so hard to say. Yeah, man. Well, you know, you're you're quite a ways into your journey before you had to get off the uh, the route. Tell us about the last fourteen months and and what it was like. Um, just I mean, you start in Ushuaia. Did did you have the idea? Because from the title, I'm sure people are going to be able to know, like it's like bikepacking, mountaineering, or something was what I'm thinking. Did you have the idea that you wanted to mountaineer already, or was it something that started, you know, kind of, kind of coming up on you as you got closer? Uh, yeah, I, I 100% knew going into it that I would really like to do some mountaineering. I, I just know there are so many nice big peaks in. Uh, northern argentina chile and bolivia that i really wanted to climb as well as i was really really had my eyes set on chimborazo in ecuador so tell us a little bit about how did you climb these mountains because for reference these were over many of them over twenty thousand feet i mean these are taller than denali how did you plan for that and have a bike did you have to ship gear ahead because so kind of what we're talking about here is the combination of mountaineering and bike packing or bike touring which i think is just an incredible uh just combo of two things i did a bike packing mountaineering trip a few years ago in colorado and it was just such a cool dynamic to meld the two sports together but my trips, I could just run up in some some running shorts and some shoe, tennis shoes. I I didn't need like you know expedition gear. For you, how, how did you pack all that, or did you ship it ahead? What did that look like? So I 
so I actually biked in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan with a good friend the year before uh, from university. And on this trip in South America, I basically gave him an open invitation saying, hey, I really want to really would love for you to come down here. I have some awesome mountain objectives I would really like to tick off. So if you're coming down here, let's uh, let's do this crazy <laughs> mountaineering supper fest, whatever you want to call it. But so he came, flew down and met me in at San Pedro de Atacama in Chile. And he brought me two more paneers. So I ran a full four paneer setup just to carry all the gear. And we did four four paneer full gear setups pushing through <laughs> some terrible, terrible conditions in Bolivia uh, just to get to the base of some of these peaks. But yeah, like you said, it's a it's so much gear to carry on a bike, but there's something that seems so natural, uh, especially with mountaineering and like 14ers in Colorado. Like what a great, like I want to go do that someday. That sounds so awesome. But just the bicycle as being such an efficient means of human powered transport. And then mountaineering being the sport where it's kind of you versus the mountain and with ethics, like wanting to do it as self supported as you can. It just seems bicycle plus mountaineering are, it's a great combination. Wow, man. The only thing that, uh, that was interesting from my observation, and I'm sure you felt it on just such a more magnificent way. When you go to climb a mountain from a bike, you 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 got to get to the trailhead or to wherever you're starting, and it's usually a heck of a climb to that point. It's not <laughs> the best way to to rest for a mountaineering expedition. Did did you find your body at all overworked, or honestly in a in better shape to have biked to some of these starting points and then climbed the mountain? Well, so certainly I was acclimatized as one can ever be because for the previous two months before I started for about a month I was in the high altitude Atacama desert so it's called the Puna de Atacama in Argentina and it's a region where the average elevation is over 12,000 feet so and it's a desert and it's a desert and it's also brutal um, bike packing but so I was, I had been biking there by myself before my friend came and I, I was not having issues at elevation. I mean, anytime you're at 6,000 meters or 20,000 feet, you're going to feel it. And any effort is difficult, but, but I was about as acclimatized as you can ever be. But yeah, with the, with regards to biking so we would bike and on some of these peaks make a base camp at 5,000 meters or I mean over 18,000 feet and sleeping at, at that elevation is normally not great as far as getting a good night's rest. So it was definitely biking to that point already being such a, such a hard effort and then trying to get a good night's sleep on top of it before pushing to the mountain is very is very difficult but uh i mean also just biking at high elevation through this these really difficult conditions 
which we were doing is also just great acclimatization and a good way to get in shape quickly for mountaineering. I mean, on some of the peaks, the biking was more difficult than actual climbing. Like like the approach to, to where you were going to start climbing? Correct. Oh, yeah. wow. That's interesting. And I mean, the coolest thing is, is some of these mountains have roads up incredibly high for old mines. So on, on the first peak we climbed, we, which is Untarunku in Bolivia, we were actually able to cycle up to 5,800 meters. So we made base camp maybe at 5,100 meters. And then that next day, set off with our gear up to the end of the road, which was where an old mine was at 5,800 meters, and then just hiked 200 meters to the summit. But, but that cycling, cycling at that elevation is, is incredibly difficult. But that, that's also the highest road in the world you can, I mean, you can cycle. So that's, that that's a special one. Not all the yeah. That's that's <laughs> worth the effort, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but o- other mountains, the base camps were quite a bit lower than that, or or the end of the road was quite considerably lower. That's pretty incredible, man. So, so did did you? I mean, how do you even pick the mountains? There's just so many. Did you? Was there any sort of you know what I mean? Like I, I did one where it was like, you know, we go after 14ers or something. Was, was there any sort of credentials you were trying to meet with these mountains? And, and how did you choose just a handful versus just wanting to do them all or wanting to do one or two? So similar to 14ers and in your in the Alps, you have 4000 meter peaks like this kind of being a. A height where it's some of the highest mountains around. Uh in this region, the highest mountains are all above 6,000 meters. So we, we were going after these 6,000-meter peaks. The first one, like I said, we picked because of the road going so high. It seems special to be able to bike, bike to near the top. The other peaks were just other 6,000-meter peaks, including the, tallest, the Mount Sahama, the tallest peak in Bolivia, which, I mean, that's obvious just because it's the tallest. Uh, Chimborazo in Ecuador, that's just the tallest peak in Ecuador. So that seemed, and it's, it's so impressive. Like these peaks are so impressive that when you see them, at, at least I really, really feel a need to climb them. It, it's just, I don't know. It's hard for me to just sit there and appreciate them. But if you can get on them, it's, it's amazing. That's wild. Were, were there ever times you biked away and thought, I was just up there? <laughs> oh, that, and because you can see it from so far away, there are a couple peaks in, the nor- in northern Bolivia near Sahama, and I remembered John and I climbed Acotango, this 6,000-meter peak, and as we were cycling away from that peak, I remember looking in the distance and seeing Sahama, this the tallest peak and just going no way are we even going to try that it's just i don't know it it looked so intimidating but i mean just uh i guess we worked our way up to it waited for nice conditions but but there's certainly yeah (laughs) i'm looking at these while you're talking and yeah they're they're they honestly all of them they really resemble mount rainier or mount hood like the cascades where they're just 
massive on the landscape, you know, and, it, and, and I could imagine just seeing that thinking, I'm really going to be standing on top of that all from <laughs> human power. You know what I mean? How am I going to do that? That, that makes total sense because they're also giant volcanic peaks for the most part in this region. So, Oh, there you go. Yeah, no, I was like, that really looks like Rainier. And, and so did you, did you pass other climbers up there? Did they, they hear your story and just think you were crazy? And, and, or were you passing other cyclists at that time? Like what, what was it like interacting with other adventures in that region? I, we did not see very many other cyclists in Bolivia. I, just because we were going on such, such, uh, different routes just to get to these mountains. Uh, and we met some other climbers on, on Sahama. That was the only other peak, but the other, lots of these peaks, we were by ourselves. And so I climbed five 6,000 meter peaks in South America and I was on the summit by myself or with my partner every single time it was it was really? like think of crowded peaks these are not crowded peaks it's it's awesome <laughs> yeah I, I mean I mean I just would have thought you know maybe it's a challenge enough to where people would would want to do that now being you know fair, fairly far apart were you were you able to hit all these peaks i think 5 that you did w- within the weather window is there a decent weather window how did that work out was you was there a time crunch with that the weather window as far as seasons i think you can climb quite a few of these peaks year round there's certainly times when it's better than others and with sahama for example we we just had to camp near the base of the mountain for two nights and just wait wait out the weather just because the the weather was terrible it was snowing a ton and the wind gets so crazy on these mountains so we just waited waited a couple days and then made our way to base camp from where we were camping and uh, were able to summit so yeah that's i mean certainly waiting out better conditions but the time frame and as as far as seasons go is quite a bit more flexible than many places in the world for climbing in Sahama or sorry in Bolivia and then as far as Chimborazo that's right on the equator so that's another peak where I just happened to be there in the in good climbing conditions actually when I first got to Chimborazo by bicycle there was way too much snow and nobody could climb it. So I ended up continuing my bike tour in Ecuador and getting to La Paz. And then around a month later, I came back and climbed Chimborazo. Not from bicycle, but from right where I had cycled too. So certainly there are times when you arrive by bicycle and you can't climb just because of conditions. Wow, man, that is... That is amazing. Now, now were there, you know, I, I've heard legends of some of the, just these huge passes through the Andes that would last like days of climbing and hours and hours of descent. What, what, did, did you get to experience some of that? What were some of the, maybe the differences in that region cycling that you've experienced in other parts you've biked toward? Oh, I mean, Peru is crazy as far as just up and down nonstop if you stick in the mountains 
And yeah, certainly climbing for days. Uh, yeah, you don't count your days by kilometers or miles. You count them by elevation gain in Peru. It's just, oh man, it's just that yeah. intense. Like you have a limit for the day. I, I mean, me or you just, if you want to be a little bit happy with yourself at the end of the day, like, oh, I made some progress, even though it looks like nothing on the map. You have to look at elevation and the elevation gains and losses throughout, I mean, Peru, Ecuador, everywhere in the Andes, it's just mind blowing. And like you said, you can climb for, for days. I, I ended up going to Lima just to get some stuff sorted, get a new camera and stuff when I was in Peru. And what I and it was wonderful getting there because I exited the mountains and went all the way down to the coast. And it was just a day of downhill, just flying, going as fast as the cars on a on a paved road. And what I hadn't realized when I went down there is that all right, now you get to cycle back up into the Andes. <laughs> oh man. And, <laughs> and so I had, I mean, I went from sea level to 4,000 meters over a couple of days. And that's, that's so brutal. <laughs> just, just climbing and climbing. That is, yeah, that's a rough couple of days, man. Holy cow, man. So, well, well, good on you for, for all that. Yeah. 4,000 meters is about as high as you can go on most roads here in the States. Anyway, that's pretty wild. So, so you know, being such a long adventure, 14 months, you know, I, I've heard of people doing this in, in a lot shorter amount of time. Did, were you taking your time? Were you spending time in places or what are you, you know, have, wh- how did you spend such a, it, or is that typical? Am I, am I, do I not know what I'm talking about? Which is, which is also pretty likely. You know, it's, it's a mix of both. If you, if you stick to the Pan American highway and paved roads, I think you can do it pretty quickly. But if you want to get really remote in the mountains, and I mean, half of my time was spent on unpaved roads. And sometimes those roads are so bad, you can't even, you can't even pedal. You have to push and uh, hike your bike. So, so it really depends on the route you want to take. Uh, so as far as people I met, I felt sometimes that I was doing it a little bit quickly. But I would also meet people who had done it much faster but it also seemed that they were missing out on a lot of things I was getting to do. So there's definitely a, a compromise between going quickly and wanting to get it done fast and being able to go see beautiful things, maybe go on hikes. I mean, I spent, I spent a week in a city called, or over a week actually, in a city called Bariloche in Argentina and just went hiking with some people I met. So it's, I, I definitely wasn't racing, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. when, when I would meet nice people or be recommended something to do in an area, I would, I would try to take my time and, and really enjoy it. Man, it's just such a huge experience and such a, I mean, I cannot, I would love to tour through that area. It's so varied, so vast, so enormous. What 
I, I think what would keep a lot of people from doing something like this is the potential danger. What Could you speak to that? How did you feel around danger and around just interactions with other people? What was what was maybe your expectation going in and and what was the reality with like the, the cuz you were in you weren't just on the pan american where people might be used to seeing cyclists you were really out there at times so i knew a little bit going into this i mean just from my early tours in europe and asia that i mean people like the goodness of people is is amazing and it, it doesn't, it's not any different for South America. Like, yeah, if you want to restore your faith in humanity, and especially like in these troubling times, go for a bike tour and just see how wonderful people are. Because like the number of times I was invited into people's houses, given meals, like it's just, it's countless. And yeah, I mean, people, people are wonderful. Uh, and I didn't, I mean, the most dangerous things on tour are other cars and dogs. <laughs> I would say dogs are. <laughs> dogs. Bicycle touring will change your opinion of dogs. I would say that. Oh, man. <laughs> do, you, do you ever get nipped or, or some close calls with that? Is there, is there some scarring uh, story <laughs> you can share? There are too many, but uh, <laughs> I mean, some that stick really close. <laughs> Georgia, for some reason, Georgia and Peru worldwide have the worst dogs in the world. <laughs> I can say that as a fact. But in Georgia, I learned that when a dog, a huge, huge shepherd dog, they have these giant shepherd dogs. One ran up as I was going through a tiny town and ripped my paneer and just... That's frustrating. That's really frustrating because I'm sure it was waterproof and all that, and now it's not. Right, exactly. And that that happened. And then a little bit later on that same tour, I was going over a mountain pass, and there were some yurts nearby or little little mobile shepherd huts. And seven, <laughs> seven of these dogs ran over and surrounded me and I was 100% by myself I can see any shepherds and I started picking up the only thing which was near me which was rocks and throwing rocks at the dogs just trying to get them to go away at this point I was touring with a chain a chain lock and eventually like some madman <laughs> I picked up the chain and put it over my head and just started screaming at these dogs, and they ran away eventually. But <laughs> oh my gosh, that's wild! It, jeez, I, I was the only person there. It must have been such a scene. But these do these dogs are huge. They are not not small dogs. They're just giant, and they're doing what they they're doing what they're supposed to do protect protect their flock, I guess. But they they saw me as a huge threat. So, so that's the biggest threat. I, I know. The cars, man, cars are, cars are probably the biggest threat to our existence in the first place, especially as cyclists. You're, you know, we all drive and we just don't think about just how dangerous it really is what we're doing every day. And I, you know, it's just kind of, you just get desensitized to it. So it, it was cars and dogs that were the most dangerous. And I always want to bring that up because 
more times than not, fear the fear that people have with going into an adventure about stuff like that it 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 never ever really comes true there are anecdotes with anything but you know people typically always have the exact opposite to say like you did like it really is these these smaller things these cars and dogs not murderers out there serial killers or people looking to you know harm you at all it's quite the opposite so it's cool to hear that again um do you have any experiences out there that just that really stick out to you maybe some something that someone did for you or 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 some day you had or some trial you got through that that really really could could uh kind of you know illustrate what it was like to be out there uh um okay yeah so one of my favorite experiences I had was on this route called the, just like we have the Great Divide mountain bike route in the United States, there are the foundations for a similar route in Peru, which is the Peru Divide. And it sticks to the Andes Mountains and it's beautiful and just very, very rugged. Another reason why I took so long, because it's, it's so difficult. But on one of these days, I was descending a little bit late and just looking for a place to camp. I had spent most of my day in an area with nobody. I think it might have been the same day, like I had the road was blocked by a landslide. So there weren't any cars, but I could push my bike around the landslide just fine. But, and it's also so remote that I maybe see two, like five cars a day, sometimes two, sometimes none. And so I'm just in this really, really remote area descending at night. And I see some lights in the distance and I decide, okay, I'm just going to bike to this town and just ask somebody if, if there's a nice place to stay, because that that's very, normally people will point you to a good place to camp. So I did that, stopped to buy a little Tienda, a little store, some some nice person, local person opened it for me. It had been closed. Their children were there asking me all about what I was doing, super curious. And this is a tiny, tiny town. And they pointed to that I could just camp right in the plaza, the little square in the town. And I thought, oh, I'll just go a little bit further. And I ended up going by this little school that was lit. And I thought, I'll just ask if I can camp in the soccer field at the school. Well, I ended up going in and spoke with, spoke with a lady who was cleaning, cleaning the school. And she went and asked a teacher. And the teacher said, yeah, you can stay in the school. And so, great. All right, now I'm going to stay. Yeah, I'm going to stay in the school. And when I got it, when I was started setting up, there were the little kids and all these kids were still at school and it was late in the day. I was talking to the teacher, like, what's going on? And it was the children, children's families live so remote in the mountains around there that they all live at school during the week. So I spent this amazing night at the school speaking English, Spanish and Quechua with these kids. And then even had breakfast with them. I snuck off to 
snuck off to the tienda, the store in the in the morning, and bought everybody cookies, which they had with breakfast, which was, I'm not, I'm not sure it was the right time of day, but bought them all cookies. And then I headed off after a little bit more time in the morning down this down this road. And after maybe a kilometer of descending, I heard some little kids yelling behind me. And these kids had ran with a sign <laughs> that their teacher made for me, like to come back to their town someday and remember us and all this stuff. Just amazing, amazing, wonderful people. And I don't know. I, I don't know how you get that without travel and just putting yourself out there. Yeah, that gives me chills, man. Just just thinking about how amazing of an experience that must have felt like in the moment, and, and then just to ride away and think, can't believe that just happened, and I got to just, yeah, oh my gosh, you know. And and for we talk about adventure and breaking up your routine all the time, and just not letting yourself get in this rut, and and obviously travel and something like this does that. But it also, you break into people's routine too. You know, those kids just ha- were having another day and and you come crashing in and it's something that they will remember for a really long time, if not forever. And it's just, hey, remember that one time that guy rode in here on a bicycle? And who <laughs> knows, they might've remembered that lesson that day a little bit more at school. So it's just... It's not only for us that we do these things, but really it's those people we interact with, the people you run into at the gas station that you just kind of throw something into that routine that they can that can really stick in their mind too. And I always appreciate now when I run into somebody who's who's doing something out of the box like that. So that's an amazing story. That and, and it's the small things too. It wasn't the the summit of a mountain. It's hanging out with some kids and getting them cookies for breakfast. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah. and, and it's so wonderful. And that's just one of countless, countless experiences like that with locals. I mean, it's just, yeah, the people in South America are amazing. People around the world are amazing, but it's, I don't know, you really fall in love with a place when you travel through it by bike. You do. It's a great pace. It It is an absolutely great pace. As As you continued on your journey, um, at some point, you know, COVID started happening and, and what, what made you decide to get off the road? Was it just seeing the news? Was it local pressure? Uh, cause you know, it, you were kind of early on still, it wasn't in the throes of it. It was just when things are starting to shut down. You know, I had a big eye opener was I was in Panama and crossed into Costa Rica. And when I crossed into Costa Rica, I was crossing there to visit, have my sister come visit me. And we were going to spend time in Costa Rica together. So that was my main concern was getting there. And as I crossed the border, I asked the Panamanian border guards, Hey, like, is the border going to be open for a while yet? Like, what are you guys going to do? And they did, they told me, Oh, just watch the news. It's, nothing's going to happen. And then that night, the border closed behind me. And it was yeah, it it was a really eye-opening thing. Like things are going to move incredibly quickly. And I the next day I called my sister and said, "I I don't think you should fly here. I think I'd be irresponsible to have you fly here and then get stuck. Like if anything, I only want me to get stuck here." 
And this this was also I didn't have Wi-Fi yet in Costa Rica. I didn't well, I well I didn't find Wi-Fi, but I didn't have a SIM card, so I also didn't know what was going on exactly. And I went to a hostel. Normally I camp, but I went to a hostel to get Wi-Fi. And while I was at the hostel, the lady told me, "Oh, it's it hasn't been very busy. Like you'll you'll be the only person here." And that evening, a Polish couple and a German came in, and they their flights, the Polish couple's flights had been canceled back home, and they were struggling to figure out how they were going to get back to Europe. And so it was kind of eye-opening that things are going to change again. Things are going to change quickly. I have to make a decision whether I'm willing to stay in Costa Rica for potentially an undetermined length of time or book a normal flight back home, which I could do easily now. And so I just made the call to fly back home. And it was incredibly difficult, especially after 14 months working towards this goal. Uh, yeah, incredibly difficult, but in hindsight, I'm very, very glad I did because if I had stayed, I, I would, I would definitely still be stuck there. (laughs) And I just know everybody, I have friends who were also touring at the same time because you meet so many people on the road and those who decided to stay in Argentina and Ecuador, different countries they ended up having to take expensive flights sponsored by the government to get back to their home countries. So in the end, it was the right call. It was an extremely difficult call. But I mean, I guess who, it's, it's unprecedented times. So nobody knew anything at, that, at the moment. No, that definitely was the right call. And definitely hard, man. You're so far into this journey, you know. I'm well over halfway. Yeah, more like two thirds of the way through, and, and and you have to do this. But you ended at a you know a, a nice place that wasn't terribly far from home either. So I'm hoping that maybe you know it wasn't as expensive as it could be. You know, now that you're planning to go back and, and continue the journey, uh, are are you also going to be doing it the same style, or are you trying to? like knock the goal out or is it going to be like, I want to climb these mountains along the way. And if so, what, what, what's your plans around that? So I, I don't have any mountains planned for my current route. I know the, the great divide route does go <laughs> past some 14 ers and there are plenty of peaks along that entire route. But at the moment I don't have more plans for mountaineering. Uh, I'm, going to do it in the same sense as I plan on taking difficult, challenging routes. You know, the Great Divide is not the fastest way to get from get from Mexico to Canada or vice versa. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I I've uh, I I still have some peaks on my on my list that I wouldn't mind wouldn't mind making a summit on, but We'll see. I'm I'm always open, and yeah, uh, if so, if somebody shows up with mountaineering gear, I don't think I'll be able to say no. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
So if you're going by Denali at some point and someone someone has what what you need, you just might try to go for it. Uh, I, I would go for that in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> good to know. Good to know. I mean, I don't have any plans. Don't get me wrong, but that's uh, it's good to know. Maybe somebody out there will reach out. Um, well, man, well, Carl, gosh, is there anything else that you really wanted to share just talking about this? You know, maybe maybe some advice for someone to get started if they if they didn't have the background you had or the experience with family. Really, this show, we just want to inspire people to to break, you know, do the smallest thing to break that that routine to to try adventure just because with you it's like once a seed is planted, uh it can grow pretty quickly with with minimal <laughs> with minimal inspiration and with minimal water and fertilizer, you know? Yeah, a little bit out of control like a weed, huh? Yeah, it can be. It doesn't need much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, the biggest thing I say is to just go do it. Don't Don't let the gear you have or your experience limit you, Uh, especially with bike touring. If you are cycling around you don't have to do a big tour for your first tour my first tour was not a big tour uh and i even did a practice tour in europe which was short and if you are cycling where you have towns along your route and you have cars that pass you even in the worst case if you blow a tire and can't manage to patch it or just let's just say you destroy i don't i don't even it's it's hard to break your bike to the point where you can't pedal. But even if you did, somebody would come by and pick you up or help you out. And there's there's not much to be afraid of. So just, just plan your first bike trip, it, specifically for bike trip. Just plan your first trip. Keep it simple. Don't plan on doing too many miles per day. Just keep it keep it enjoyable. And then next one, you know, bite off a little bit more, maybe go off road the whole time or, you know, you can, you can always do more. And if you have gear for camping, you can strap it on your bike. You do not need to buy fancy bike packing gear or fancy. You you don't need that gear. Maybe get it later. But when you're starting out, I don't know, you can, you can wear a backpack. I don't recommend it. Backpacks suck. Yeah. For bike. yeah. But, <laughs> but you but, know, it, you're, you're getting out there, but you can. And for two or three days, it's not going to kill you. So, yeah. man, I, I, you know, we're such advocates of doing it here, just doing it with what you have as cheap as possible. You know, when I was doing my first bike tours, they were ridiculously inexpensive and now that I'm, you know, have a job and a kid and a house and it's like, you know, life is more expensive. That doesn't mean that adventure that I take has to be any more expensive than it was when I was in college. I enjoyed it just as much then. I can do it now. I can make that work financially. I can I can make those little trips happen and it doesn't have to be like you said with all this, you know, $300 set of panniers or something. Like you build up to that. But the feeling of getting out there and being on an adventure, you've got to you've got to get out there and do it when you can. And uh, man, uh, you know, you, you just said so many things that we harp on here, and so I, I really appreciate that. And it's it's always good to hear from someone who's actually living it, actually doing it, uh, rather than just me who talks to people doing it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm not even using the most expensive gear right now. I mean, it's. Yeah. So you, you yeah. can do it what you have. 
man, that's and you said a really good thing. It takes a lot to get your bike to the point that it won't work anymore. It, it, I mean, I, I've ne- I haven't seen it in my bikes, so and they've been through hell and back. So, <laughs> it, it, you would be an anomaly if you were able to to break it to that point. So, um, well, Carl, man, I really appreciate you joining. I'm going to have to go, but I would love to stay in touch, love to follow you with uh, your journey starting up again soon. And I'm going to plug everything that uh, that folks can follow you. And if you don't mind, do you mind sharing where folks can keep up with your journey? Sure. So I, on Instagram, I'm where is Carl? And that's where underscore is underscore Carl with a K. And then on YouTube, I'm Carl Kroll. So yeah, you can just find me there. Perfect. All right. Well, we will tag all that, plug all that, and uh, make sure your story is told. And I'll keep you updated about when it comes out. And yeah, man, thank you for joining and, and jumping on. This has been exciting. Thank you, Mason. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. We'll have you on again when you hit uh, Prudhoe Bay, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. All right, man. Enjoy your night. We'll talk soon. All right. Have a good evening. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.